as, uh, as I've grown up, and I'm only 31, I, I turned 31 in August, for some of you go, oh, 31, and so other people go, that is nothing, man, because you realize that with, with age comes wisdom and perspective, and when I was, you know, when I was 25, I thought I knew a lot of stuff, and I realize now at 31, man, I didn't know anything when I was 25, and so I know when I reach 40, I'll look back and go, what is the deal? Why do we always think we know so much? And the thing I've come to learn is that experience and wisdom, they're a blessing from God. And really, if we're smart, then we'll try to learn from and leverage the, the experience of our past, the victories, the mistakes, so we can have a better future with God, so we can learn to not walk in the same ways as we did before. But the problem is, especially my problem, I don't know if this is your problem or not, the problem is that oftentimes I'm very forgetful. Aren't you forgetful? I mean, the last time I ate t- 10 pieces of pizza in one sitting, I knew what happened. <laughs> I felt horrible, and I'm rolling around and going, babe, why'd you let me eat all that pizza? You know what I mean? But still, the next time I see two large pizzas there, nobody around, I'm like, let's do this. You know what I mean? And so, and I dive in, you know, and I make the same mistakes. Or just this last week, uh, my, my wife and I purchased a new dishwasher, and I know that I hate plumbing, <laughs> and the plumbing hates me. And yet, nonetheless, even though I've had these experiences here, I said, you know what? I can take this. You know, you can save your $130 install charge. I'll be handling the dishwasher in this household. Beat my chest and grunted. And so, and so I get started here, and you guys know how the story goes. You men out there can definitely relate, and you brave women out there who are HGTV fans can also relate. And so you get in, and you get in there, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. After my second trip to Home Depot, and I'm under the sink, and I'm awfully big to be under the sink. I'm just having this come-to-Jesus moment, like, why, Lord? Like, why didn't you put me in the colonial days before plumbing existed? Like, I'm just having a hard time and I'm going, you know what? I've been here before. I I should have learned the first time. I hate plumbing and plumbing hates me. And so why don't we learn? You know, when I uh, walk into Nordstrom Rack and I want to buy one pair of shoes, you know, and some of you people out here can relate to this shopping dilemma. You walk in and it's a shoe wonderland, right? And you can't just buy one pair of shoes in Nordstrom Rack. Look at the deals. And you walk out three pairs of shoes later and you come home. You're like, oh, man, this happens to me. I know you you guys are going, that happens to my wife. What's wrong with you? (laughs) I like shoes. And so confession time. But these, these are the things that, you know, we, we are stubborn, hard-headed, forgetful people, aren't we? I mean, the things we need to learn as we go along life, they're things that we really need to lock in today. And when we get into God's Word and He teaches us lessons from the past, He wants us to learn some things so we can apply them to leverage a better future in His Word with His wisdom. And so a couple of things that I've just locked into my, my mainframe here just in life uh, that I want to share with you guys, which is uh, maybe going to save your life one day, is that just because somebody else in your youth group can do a backflip doesn't mean you can too, okay? So this is a lesson I learned the hard way because I was born about this big and uh, you know some genius had an idea hey let's all do backflips you know and the little guys are going foop 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 and i go and i get all 210 pounds of me in motion and make it about a third of the way through a backflip and boom snap you know broken ankle or some of you guys learn this piece of, of of news the hard way and it's this when someone tells you on your mission trip not to drink the water okay <laughs> You should listen to them and not drink the water because you don't want to spend your mission trip in a bathroom. You know, that's not why people sent you in sacrifice to get you over there so you could minister to people through the stall door. Okay, so so some of these things, why don't we why don't we get this stuff? Why don't we understand? And as we look today, we're going to look into the history of Israel today a little bit. Paul in the book of Corinthians is going to go back and, and say, you all should learn some examples from the people who have gone before you so you don't have to repeat the sins of their past. 
And he wants us to remember these lessons so we can take hold of the life that we want tomorrow. We want a life with God. We want a life of victory. We want to cross the finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, you knucklehead, you barely made it. What were you thinking? And so, uh, so there's this phrase which I think can anchor us today as we, uh, as we kind of jump into this. And this phrase is this. You might have heard it in your philosophy class or maybe in your history class. But the phrase is, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Have you heard that before? And you can see that in the lives of people that you know. People that they just can't learn the first time or the second time or the third time. They just keep beating their head against the wall and don't get it. And this is true politically. It's true, you know, of nations. It's true of us in our lives. But those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And so Paul says, let's look back to the past. Let's go back and understand that if we can, if we can learn from God's word and move forward, then you're in a good shape. But if you have... This condition called spiritual amnesia. If you don't remember, if you, if you don't learn from those lessons, I, I'm warning you today, and Paul's warning is that that can be a terminal condition. And it can be something that's going to affect you experiencing the blessings that God has for you in your life. And so let's flip together. We're, today, we're in part 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That means uh, that we're in part 14 of the series. We're just in chapter 10, though. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to flip there, uh, you have your Bibles there underneath the seats. It's on page 957. And uh, just to throw you guys for a loop, we're going to do the fill-in-the-blank at the very end today, okay? So uh, just hold on, and it still, still take some notes if God speaks to you. But uh, we're going to read together 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. And then we'll pray and uh, understand how we can apply these lessons from the past to our lives and to our futures. So let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by, uh, I'm sorry, were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, uh, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake from the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is some pretty deep stuff. And let's pray right now that the Spirit would open our minds and guide us as we uh, learn this together today. Let's pray. God, we just ask for you to open our minds and our eyes, God, to see wonderful things in your word. God, we know that you are a God who desires for us, uh, God, not to walk blindly, God, and to learn by uh, mistakes, but you want us to learn wisdom for the journey, and that you've equipped us, God, uh, to walk your path, and you've given us everything we need, God. We just ask that you would help us to take hold of those gifts and those promises today, that we could walk a life, God, that would be pleasing to you in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, contextually, because we always like to look at where we're at as a part of the whole, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse in chapter 9, Paul's just finishing up this metaphor of a race. And he says, if you're a Christian, you are in a race. And so therefore, we need to run in such a way as to get the prize. Don't run, you know, like aimlessly. Don't beat the air. Train vigorously and run diligently so that you can take hold of the prize, which is life, which is crossing the finish line in a way that pleases God. Lest, he says, you be disqualified for the prize. And so in light of this disqualification, he's saying, you know what? This story here, this, this race, this diligence, it's something we need to grasp just as the Israelites needed to grasp this. And so he says in verse 1, he uses the Israelite nation as an example. And he gives us a little history lesson here, which we can parallel our lives in. And he says, as we jump in, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, he says this. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And so if you are ignorant of this, which many of us are because we live in a Gentile world here, he says, I want you to know, brothers, all Christians, that our fathers, and he's not talking about our biological fathers, he's talking about the Jewish fathers, he's talking about the patriarchs, he's talking about Moses and the people of Israel. And you go, wait a second, you know, well, I'm not Jewish, so why should I call those people my father? Well, Paul is pretty clear in his writings that, that we, if we were Gentile believers, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are engrafted into the people of God. And this spiritual heritage that God began with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that story he began to unroll his plan for reconciliation from creation through his covenant with his Israelite people, all the way to Jesus, that we're part of that lineage. We're a continuing piece of that line. And so we don't just start in the New Testament. We don't just pick up, you know, when Jesus arrives on the scene and go, yeah, that's where our history begins. We tap into and we understand that the whole rest of this Bible of ours, that these 66 chapters here, most of which are Old Testament, we need to understand and learn from so we can know God's character and so we can walk according to his ways. And so he says to us, then he says, all of us Christians need to understand that our fathers, the ones we have spiritual heritage from, they were all under the cloud. And what does that mean? He's referring here to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that went before the people of Israel as they left Egypt. God says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt now, out of slavery, so you can be free to worship me. I'm going to lead you to a promised land. And he sends them this pillar of cloud. It's, it's a beacon of his presence. And he goes before them to lead them and guide them. And so it says, our fathers were under this cloud here. They walked by faith following this cloud. And furthermore, they all passed through the sea. And we, they passed through the sea because God split the waters of the Red Sea. And they walked through on dry land. And when Pharaoh and his army pursued, he closed in the waters behind them. And so the people walked by faith these first few days of this Exodus journey. They were like, oh my gosh, where are we going? 
pillar of cloud. Alrighty then, no problem, you know. Ah, you know, Red Sea, Pharaoh. Whoop, you know, God opens the, the Red Sea. And so they walk through and they go, wow, God must truly have a purpose and a plan for us. And their identification with those experiences in faith, it says in verse 2, it resulted in this. And it says, all were baptized not, li- not literally baptized into Moses, but they were figuratively identified with him through the consolidation of their faith together as Moses inaugurated this new covenant. It says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So as they walked behind the cloud and as they walked through the sea, they were putting their, their, their chips in Moses' basket to say, this is the person we're going to follow here. We are all in for God. And he talks about the blessings then that result from that. So they get across the Red Sea and they find themselves in the wilderness. In verse 3 it says, and all ate the same spiritual food. And this is pretty cool because you get across here and and the Israelite people were prone to complain. And so they get across and go, man, I wish we had some food, God. You know, it's like your kids, you know, you take them to some place and they forget they're in Disneyland. You know, they want food now. It's like, what do I need to do for you guys? And so God says, no problem. I'll supply some food. And so when they woke up the next morning, there was this stuff on the ground, this cake-like substance. And they literally said, what is it? And from that, what is it, that came, the term manna, that actually literally means, what is it? And so, but it's like, basically, wake, imagine waking up and walking out into your yard, and there's cranberry orange scone on the ground. This is like a dream I have, okay? I love Starbucks scones for breakfast, and I'm like, oh my gosh. So they, they pop out the tent and go, man, I'm starving. <gasps> what the, you know? And like, they start gathering up. Honey, come here. The scone's on the ground, you know? And so they get the kids together and they gather it up. And this process of God providing for them breakfast, basically, and while they're in bed every single morning, it was a, it was a provision from God. And the weird thing was they could only gather as much as they could eat for that day. If they held on to anything else, it would go bad in the night. And so this became a spiritual, miraculous source of provision for them in the desert that brought them closer to God. And so when he says that they all ate the same spiritual food here, he's not talking about some imaginary food that they had with a tea party. He's talking about this, this sustenance, this food that God gave them, which strengthened them physically and also strengthened them spiritually. And he says that they also all drank from the same spiritual drink in verse 4. And the spiritual drink here, you know, what happens when you eat a scone? You're thirsty, right? And so they just got their bellies full and like, God, where's the water? You know? And he's like, man, this is a whiny people. Maybe I should have left you guys in Israel or in Egypt and, and just let the whole thing shake out on its own. And so Moses, he, he takes his staff and he goes and God instructs him to smack a rock with his staff. And from that rock flowed water so the people could drink to their fill, fill their canteens, water their flocks, and they were all taken care of. And God provided for them in the desert this, this drink here. And so in the same way, this drink nourished them physically. But God's provision was with them throughout their wandering in the wilderness in spite of a lot of their lack of faith. And then this next part's a little weird. If you look at uh, uh, 4, the last part there, it says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is kind of a weird thing for us. Because if you're a New Te- or an Old Testament scholar at all, you know that there was not a rock that followed them. Can you imagine if, I mean, you get a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, there's weird things happening here. It probably wouldn't have been anything for the people to walk along and go, 
are you seeing this? You know, <laughs> there's a rock following us here, you know what I mean? And, and that would be a pretty cool part of the story. But it really came from the rabbis. And so uh, the Jewish people, they, they put some, some backstory in that, necess- that wasn't necessarily according to the scriptures here. And so this is a Jewish legend that the rock that Moses struck literally followed them through the desert, kind of like a portable drinking fountain, okay? And wherever they went to, they had this. But, but really, what, I think what Paul's referring to here is not that reality that it happened. He's just referring to the sense of presence that, that was God's provision and closeness there. And it's interesting because he points to Christ as that rock of provision for them. And so even before Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament here, when he's born in a manger, we see that Jesus was at work all along. That Jesus was providing for, spiritually, the needs of his people. And when the time was right, he came in the flesh and he accomplished what God had for him here. So all these things here are blessings that the Israelite people enjoyed from God. And from those blessings, they should have known, wow, we are spoiled by God. We should follow him. We shouldn't complain. We shouldn't turn our hearts towards idols. And so Moses, or Moses and the Israelite people, they enjoy these blessings. And they are a type of Christ to us. They are a, a foreshadowing of blessings that we enjoy. And this interpretation of Old Testament realities and the New Testament fruit of those realities, this foreshadowing process and fulfillment, is called typology. If you're, a, if you're a Bible scholar at all, then typology is kind of an interesting thing. Because where can we draw the parallels between Old Testament experience and New Testament fulfillment? And here it's pretty easy. Because just in the same way that Israelites were baptized into Moses and identity with him, we, as Christians, the New Testament, we're baptized into Christ. And we're identified with him. Christ is the, the he brings the new covenant into our lives. He's the inaugurator of the new covenant. Secondarily, there's manna in the desert, which is pretty cool. You know, scones are great for breakfast, and that provision is wonderful. But in the New Testament, Jesus, he says that I am the bread of life. Jesus is our nourishment. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament reality. Jesus, uh, Jesus is our living water. They had a rock in the desert. We have Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in John chapter 4, when he says to the woman at the well, he says, If you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you a drink, and you would never thirst again. And the water he was talking about was not physical water. It's the satisfaction that Jesus brings into our lives. And so Jesus says that there's no rock here anymore. I'm the living water. I'm the provision for you. And just as the Old Testament people enjoyed that for the provision of God's presence through the pillar of cloud and fire and the tabernacle and all these ways that God drew close, Jesus says, he says, you know what? He says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so the Old Testament blessings that they enjoyed should have set them up for success. And Paul's saying the New Testament ramifications of those same blessings that we enjoy fulfilled in Christ, they should set us up for success in this journey. But there's a catch in verse 5. It says this. He says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so you go, whoa, wait a second, all these blessings and God was not pleased with them? How, how did that go wrong? Like, what, what part of that broke down? And you might hear Paul whispering at this point in time. He says, don't forget the past or you'll be doomed to repeat it. And he unpacks these examples from the history of Israel that we need to learn from. In verse 6, he says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We see their hearts were tempted and that idolatry crept in and that, that they were divided and they started to turn their back on God. And he gives us some examples here. In verse 7, it says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
And you go, what's wrong with this? It sounds like they went to a rest stop, you know what I mean? And like he let the kids on the swings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to have a good time. And we read that, and we kind of miss the meaning completely. But what he's referring to is the exact reference from Exodus chapter 32 of when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the commandments from the Lord. And this is an amazing story, you know, there's, there's cloud and lightning on the hilltop and he goes up there and the people aren't allowed to come up with him and he's receiving the commandments from God. God is scrolling them out on stone tablets for him. And while he's up there, the people start to go, woo, he's been gone for like five minutes, hasn't he? <laughs> I'm kind of getting bored. How about we make a golden calf? Wouldn't that be a good idea? And someone goes, yeah, that's great. This pillar of cloud stuff's freaking me out. Let's craft something with our own hands that we can control and put our faith in that. And so they collect all the gold they plundered from Egypt, and they form this golden calf. And they start to worship this thing, and they start to sacrifice to it, and they sit down to have a feast, and they rise up to dance and celebrate here because we have this golden calf, and it's going to save us now that Moses is gone. And while Moses is up there, God goes, hey, uh, BT Dub, he's like, down the hill, they're into some stuff already. And Moses goes, oh no, I knew this was going to happen. He's like, they've been grumbling the whole time. And I, and I knew this was going to go down like this. And God says, you might scamper on down there and see what they're into. So you can put a cease to that. Otherwise, I'm going to snuff them out and we're going to start this whole thing over again. And so Moses, you know, as fast as you can go with like stone tablets on your back down a hill, he goes down. And sure enough, when he's far off, he hears the sound of singing and revelry in the camp. And he goes, hey, what the heck's going on? He goes and he sees them engaged in this idolatry. And Moses is ticked because he knows that God does not tolerate, he does not tolerate adultery spiritually in his people. And so he goes and he takes this golden calf, he throws it in the fire, he literally, he grounds up the remnants into dust and he makes them drink it. And so it's like washing your kid's mouth out with soap. It's like washing your kid's mouth out with idol, okay? It's like, this is what you guys are going to get. And so you guys need to not do this. And he literally draws a line in the sand and says, listen, if you guys are going to follow God, you need to jump on this side of the line. And if not, then you need to choose now because the consequences aren't going to work out. We can't have division in the camp. And so he says to the, the people, he says to the people in Corinth, he says to us today, listen, understand that we, we can't turn to idolatry. We can't turn to things besides God to look for our fulfillment. We need to have hearts for him. And in verse 8, he takes it a little further, a little closer to home for the people in Corinth. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And you go, okay. Not catching the reference there again, you know, here we are, Gentiles. Let me fill you guys in on what that's about. And so in Numbers chapter 25, later on, same journey, same people, same pigheadedness, okay? A different instance. Numbers 25 verses 1 through 3. Here's what the Israelites got themselves into this time. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, they are camped here, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And so literally, the, the pagan people around them started to work their way in, and the men started to prostitute themselves with these women. And the results were pretty severe. It says, these women invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And so the people here, God's providing, God's walking, God's forgiving, he's gracious here. And what do we find them doing again? We find them stumbling into idolatry and sexual immorality. And Paul's saying to, to the church in Corinth, he says, listen, you guys live in basically the, you know, the New Testament equivalent of Las Vegas. He says sexual immorality is rampant. These, these feasts and these celebrations you have where there's, you know, there's orgies and there's all this you know, rampant sexuality here, you need to turn your back on that. Because here's what happened to these people. 
when they turned their back on God and turned to idols and sexual immorality, God said to Moses, he says, okay. He's like, take the chiefs of the people and send them out. Take the judges and have them put to death those leaders in the community who have engaged in this. And so they go out and they put down maybe as many as a thousand people to the sword. And furthermore, God sends a plague on Israel so that the total of this, the fallout, is 24,000 people died because of their rebellion. And so Paul says, you know, he says 23,000 people fell in a single day. Probably Paul's referring to the number of people who fell in the plague. He's talking about how the people suffered these consequences here. But keeping numbers aside, the bottom line is the people of God rebelled against him through sexual immorality and idolatry. And they were struck down in sin. And Paul says, let this be a warning to you. Watch your step. Do not be disqualified from the prize. Remember the past or you're doomed to repeat it. And he goes on with just a few more examples. In verse 9 he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And so we see here that Paul's, he's likening their rebellion to putting Christ to the test because Jesus and God are one. And so he says, do not put Christ, in their case, do not put the Lord to the test as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. And some of you parents out there can relate to this one, okay? Because this is like when you go on a road trip with your kids and you pack up the minivan and you're heading down the road and they start to go, are we there yet? <laughs> and this is what the Israelites are doing here. They're, they're getting weary once again from the journey and they start to put God to the test. They th- start to say, how far can I push God? If we whine, if we complain, can we twist his arm to get him to do some stuff for us? And so these people are growing weary of the 40-year road trip in Numbers chapter 21. It says this. This is hilarious. The people spoke against God and against Moses. You're like, hello? I didn't know there was this much rebellion in there. Why don't they get the message? He says, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They questioned. For there is no food and no water. And God's going, oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) There is food and there is water and I'm providing for you. And furthermore, they say, and we loathe this worthless food. Ooh, you don't talk bad about God's scones. It goes badly for you, okay? And so he says the result, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So next time your kids start to whine and complain, say, don't make me get the fiery serpents out of the glove box and turn this thing back around to Egypt, okay? You don't, you know, you don't want to threaten your kids, but at the same time, we understand this, this attitude here of pushing and testing God. That God said, I'm not having any of it, you know? And I don't know how many people in here are terrified of snakes, but fiery serpents slithering into camp, it's easy for me to say, and they come and they bite and they put these people to death here. You go, okay. You know, I, I got this. Don't put God to the test. I'm going to learn this lesson here. And so don't presume upon God and his forbearance is what Paul's trying to say to them. Don't try to test God by pushing the limits of his grace and his boundaries. And then lastly, to wrap it all up in verse 10, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So this grumbling here, you know, it's basically, in case you haven't caught the the tune, there's a constant grumble in Israel. There's people here who are naysayers and they're mean-spirited and they're dissatisfied. And it says in two different instances, in in, uh, Numbers chapter 14, Numbers chapter 16, when the people of God hear the report back from the spies who went into the promised land, the spies got back and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, this place is great. He said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's get in there and take that place. But the other ten spies go, oh, it's scary, and there's giants, and there's walled cities, and our God can't handle it. And so the people go, oh, grumble, 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 grumble. And they start to grumble against God and say, once again, he brought us out here to die by the sword. And God says to the grumbling, he says, basically, you guys are ridiculous here. And what does he do? He sentences them to wander another 40 years so that generation is passed over. 
And so in that sense, in, uh, the destroyer, anytime God brings his, his justice and puts the hammer down here and destroys them, he's saying these people were destroyed by the destroyer. It could be a reference to the angel of death. It could be a reference to just God and his thwomp down power. But there's another instance um, where the, um, there's a guy named Korah, and he goes against Moses and says, Listen, who made you so holy that you can rule over us here? Why can't we presume to lead as well? And so Moses says, Be my guest. And he says, You want to try God in that way? Go for it. And Korah grumbled against the people. And every single one of those people was, was beaten down by God. Literally, the earth swallowed up the next day, and Korah and all of his minions were basically were eaten up by the earth, and it closed. And he says, do we have any other questions? <laughs> okay, let's move on then, because we want to follow God. But this grumbling here, it's essentially, it's questioning God's goodness. And we think about that. How often do we question God's goodness and his character? God, why am I going through this right now? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your plan? Have you, have you fallen asleep up there? I'm crying out for help. And he starts to say, God, are you truly good? Are you truly the God that you say that you are? And in circumstances like that, we have to remember, we have to look back and learn from the past, lest we repeat it, that God is a God who says what he says because he's a God of love and a God of grace and a God with a plan. And if you believe that, you need to put your preferences aside and you need to say, God, you know what? Fundamentally, I can say this is uncomfortable. I know you can handle my railing against you, Father, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my faith in you. And this is what he wants us to learn. And says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. It says those things happened to them so that we could learn from them. And they're written down for our benefit, for our instruction, for the future. And now, listen, it's the end of the age. Time is ticking away. We don't have time to mess around anymore. We have to run this race with perseverance. We have to run with diligence and intentionality because the time is at hand. And even though Jesus has tarried 2,000 years, I tell you, church, we are in the last days still. We need to understand that Jesus could come back in the blink of an eye. And we need to be ready. We need to walk with diligence. We need to run this race with perseverance here and not be tripped up by the things around us. And so he warns us. Those people there, they had all these things, and still they fell short. They fell away from God. Understand, you Christians out there with all of your blessings and all the promises of Scripture, Jesus is faithful. Are you? Are you going to walk with him? Are you going to put away pride and cockiness and understand that humility and diligence is what God requires of you? And though he warns us in verse 12, he says, Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands, that he stands strong, he stands firm, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So he says, watch out for this temptation of arrogance. And he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And he starts to say, listen, you feel like you're the only person out there being tempted? You feel like you're the only person out there struggling with this? If you look at the track record here of Israel, there is nothing new under the sun. These temptations that you think you're going through that you can't resist because you're the only person out there going through it and, and it's just my lot in life to struggle with this sin or this habit. He says, no. He says, no temptation have, has overtaken you that is not common to man. This is the same song and dance that the enemy has been presenting to us over and over and over again as the accuser and the tempter comes to drag the people of God away through enticement and seduction. So understand, this is not new. Satan's not that creative. He doesn't have to be because we're so fallen and so stupid. We keep falling prey to the same things. He keeps baiting the same traps. We keep going right back to him. Can we learn from the past to walk towards God's future? And he says in the second half of verse 13, here's the key here. Understand this, that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we learn some pretty key things here. The enemy is going to keep pursuing, but understand God is faithful. He's not going to set you up for a fall. God has power to deliver us from temptation at any time. He says with the temptation, you're going to find this lifeline, this rope, this sign here as you start the detour and God's going, warning, warning, turn back. It's like Mario Kart when you get turned around the wrong direction, you know, and the little cloud's going, U-turn, U-turn, make a U-turn. Come on, Mario Kart, anybody? Okay. I'm like, is, you know, is this thing on? Okay, cool. Mario Kart, the epic Wii game. Okay, cool. So, and so he, he goes, listen, you need to understand, as you're going along through life, man, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say no to that temptation, but you have to take it when it comes. Listen, when temptation comes knocking at the door, understand this. God has promised that no temptation can kick down the door of your life and say, whoa, I made it in. Sweet. I think I'll stay a while and we'll have a big sin party. That's not how it works. When temptation comes knocking, according to scripture, we have an opportunity to open the door to temptation, to let sin sneak and slither through the door into our lives, or to keep that thing closed. And so we do that as we peek through the peak hole and we see temptation knocking, we we go, okay, wait a second, God. I think I've seen that guy before. And the last time this whole thing went down, it didn't work out so well for me. And so what do we do? We say, we say no at that juncture there. But too often we, we, we leave the door cracked a little bit, don't we? We go, okay, cool. Well, I'm, you know, I want to say no to sin, but I'll, I'll just open this door here. And I'll keep the way open just in case it might want to come back again. Because I can't help it. The devil made me do it. <laughs> that's, that's not true according to scripture here. And so understand this. When God wants to, to save us from temptation, he does it in a couple ways. The first way is that he provides, a, a, hopefully, a bolt of lightning, of light, of realization, a sober-minded thought in the beginning of that temptation that says, whoa, wait a second. You know where this is going. You know exactly what's going to happen. If you go out of town on that business trip and you don't talk to your buddy about what goes on when you're not at home to seek some accountability here, to to draw some of the temptation into the light and rob of its power, you know what's going to go down there. Do you really want to do that? Because guess what? When you get to your hotel room and you're all by yourself there, I'm going to give you the option, but you might say no to me and yes to sin before you even make it through that door. And how often do we do that? I deal with young adults in ministry, and young adults, they have the freedom now to drive where they want, to stay where they want, to be with who they want. And so I tell them, when you go on a date, listen, the time to to seize God's lifeline, to not cross those boundaries you want to cross, is not when clothes are coming off and things are hot and heavy and you find yourself in a place all by yourself in the dark. Listen, wisdom, if we let wisdom prevail, wisdom is saying, when you're saying goodnight to that person, you know what, if nobody's home, I... I'm going to say goodbye here at the doorstep here, and I'm going to walk away because I know what happens if I go through that door and we repeat this over and over and over again. So where does God want to save us? He wants to save us before the thing gets into our minds and makes a nest. He wants to save us from temptation, and he does have power to do it. And so listen, if that coworker of yours is putting pressure on you and things are turning towards temptation, what do you do with that? Well, you call out to God you call out to community and you claim God's victory over that. And you say, you know what, Father? You've given me a brain. You've given me wisdom here. So I'm going to seize that lest I fall prey to temptation. So church, let's be honest here. There are struggles in our midst. And you are not the only person going through what you're going through right now. But God does promise salvation. God does promise help if you reach out and take the help he has provided for you. So recognize God's hand. This word for escape, it's literally when an army's backed into a corner, somebody finds a way out and they say, hey, this is the way of escape. It's this way of getting out of that sticky situation by God's power to give him glory with your life. 
And so these are the things that we want to learn from. They, people of old did not do that. In Corinth, they still struggled with immorality and idolatry. And for us now, what does Paul tell us to do today? In verse 14, he says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't try it. Stop making a place for it. When you see idolatry, when your heart is tempted, when temptation comes knocking, run far away. Flee from idolatry. Verse 15, he says, I speak as the sensible people. I hope that you, also, you guys are listening. I speak it, hoping that you have a, a brain that God gave you to discern these things for yourself. So he says, judge for yourselves what I say. In verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He says, when we engage together in community, we take communion. Do we not participate together in this, this union, this intimacy with Jesus and with the community he's purchased by his blood? He says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Do we not participate again when we're strengthened by this spiritual food, which is Jesus Christ, and the solidarity we have with him as we celebrate the sacrifice and thanksgiving there? In verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. This unity here is from Jesus, for we all partake of the one bread. And so he says here, this solidarity, this unity we have with Christ, it can't be broken down by a division of the heart or our minds or our community. He says in verse 18, consider the people of Israel, consider our forefathers, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Those who'd bring their offerings of worship and sacrifice to God, didn't they participate in worship to God there? And intimacy and closeness came from that interchange. He says in verse 19, he's getting ready to nail them on this idolatry issue that's in their midst. He says, what do I imply then? Where am I going with this? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Because we've already covered this. You know, the meat that you buy in the marketplace there, you know, that comes from who knows where, you know, it's meat. Food is food. It has no spiritual value. But listen, when you go to these places of worship, when you go to worship Apollo and Hermes and Isis, and you go to sit down in their temples, and you participate in their fellowship and their offerings to these pagan gods, you're crossing a boundary that God does not want you to cross. Your heart is engaging in something that we don't even want you to go there, because he says in verse 20, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice... They offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. This whole idolatry deception is not about spiritual powers or mythical figures. Satan wants to seduce the hearts of, of the people of this world. And he will go to any length, to any disguise to do it. He'll masquerade as an angel of light. He'll masquerade as a god of power. Anything he can do to, to distract and deter. So he says, don't even go there. Don't divide your heart with these temptations. He says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so he says, this behavior of yours, where on Sunday morning you go to church and you gather together to celebrate the resurrected Savior, and then you fill your day planner with all these other trips to the temple and all this syncretism as you take Jesus and add him on as an app to your life, as an extra God, a little extra help here, and still go about all your rigmarole of fulfillment that is incomplete because Jesus is not enough for you, you've got to put that aside. You need to understand that these idols are dragging you away from God. And we know what God does when his people turn to idols. He says in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Were you guys listening to the stuff that happened to the people of Israel back in the day? You want to make that God mad? Go for it. He says, are, are we stronger than he? If you think you're stronger than God, be my guest. But we know what happens when we come against the Lord and we tempt him. God says, I'm a jealous God. And you should put no other gods before me. 
And here's the deal, church. We have this temptation today to go, oh, well, super easy for us, you know. I only have a cross around my neck. I don't have little statues of wood and stone and carvings on my mantle that I, that I pray to, that I put my allegiance in. And that's because the deception of idolatry in our day and age is much more subtle, isn't it? If you think about the things that fight for our attention today, if you think about the idols, really our idols, in my opinion, our idols are anything that we place our worship or our trust or our value in apart from God. And think about that. Do you put your worship or your trust or your value in something apart from God? You might say with your lips that you don't, but do your actions say otherwise? Your time, your investments, does it, sh- does it say that you, you, yeah, you want to believe in God, but there's some other things here that you're really anchored in, just in case the God thing doesn't work out. Consider that. Consider that anything could be an idol in your life. Your job could be an idol. If you're looking for your job for, 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 for fulfillment or for an ego trip or for, to get something that God can't provide for you, you need to understand that time and that investment there, is it surrender to God or is this really about you? I spent this last week working on my dishwasher and I got blisters on my hands in my yard. And in the midst of this, I'm going, God, is this house an idol? I'm investing so much as my wife and I get nested out here in California and get used to being out here and try to carve out a place. I start to go, you know what, man, I wish that these blisters were blisters from ministry, not from yard work. Go, God, is this what you want me to be doing here? We need to put our lives under the microscope of God and understand where are our investments in our spouse, in our kids, in our car, in our hobby, in our ailments, and the things that we hold up. Even our pastors can become idols, people. We can't put these people on a pedestal above God. Because the temptation is that we turn to these things for power or for pleasure or for comfort. And it's easier to serve idols than it is to serve God because we can fashion them exactly how we want to. We can fashion them in a way that we, we always come out on top. We always end up winning. They always make us feel good. But that lie and that deception is just as real and just as dark as what the people in Corinth struggled with here. Because Satan would seek to seduce us subtly these days into, into divisions of the heart. And this idolatry that we don't even realize we're going through, it's, it's cheating on God. Because idolatry is adultery of our souls. And so think about this. Where in your life do you choose other things over God consistently? Because where your choices are, where your consistent choices and the things you put value in, where those things lie, they reveal where your true love is. And I want my life to beat for God. And that's not to say that stewardship is not an important thing. God wants us to take care of our stuff. God wants you to glorify him in how you love your family, how you work in your job. But listen, there's a fine balance there between us putting all of our stock in those baskets and us forgetting about God. So understand, what consumes your time and your intention and your investments today? And how can you lay those things and say, are these pursuits honoring to you, Father? Open-handedly can you say, are these things really surrendered to him? Is my life truly free of idols? And can I run this race with perseverance in such a way as to not be disqualified? Let's pray together right now that God would strengthen us toward that end. He would reveal in our hearts anything that he would want to purge from us as he makes us his holy people. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are the almighty God. Lord, we've, we've learned a lot of things the hard way, Father, but I pray we would grasp the truth of your sovereignty without having to burn our fingers, God, or stub our toes, or even worse. So God, reveal yourself as sovereign in our lives, Father, and help us to know that you are the Lord and the Savior and the Master of this earth, and that you require and demand our allegiance, Father, that you don't tolerate any other gods ahead of you. So Father, this morning, we, we ask that you'd help us to lay down those pursuits that are not of you, Father. 
God, we pray right now that the temptations that are, that are nipping at our heels, Father, that we'd see that you're victorious even over temptation because of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. God, the things we continue to fall for, that Satan says you can't help, they're things that right now you want to reach down and rescue us from, God, through your power, through the light of your truth, God, through community and accountability and your abundant grace, which draws us back, God, that kindness which brings us near to you, Father. So I pray for freedom in this church, Father, from temptation, from sin. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people so, so set on you, running the race, God, with such perseverance that you would encourage and, and propel us towards you with, with all speed and diligence, Father, and that you would protect us from anything that would seek to distract us or to stub our toes or to, to derail us along the way, God. Would you be glorified in the way we live our life, God, and reveal yourself to be our number one priority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here's your closing challenge, okay? I'll give you the, uh, the fill in the blank and the closing challenge as we walk out the door just to mix things up today. The fill in the blank that we need to understand is this. Our idols are revealed in our list of priorities, okay? Our idols are revealed in our list of priorities. So here's what the challenge is. We want you to write the top five priorities of your life based upon what your checkbook says and what your calendar says. Ooh, that's the telltale signs. Where do you spend your time and money? Be brutally honest. And you can chart that in that little circle there at the bottom of your outline there. But spend some time talking with your family or your spouse today at lunch and do those things. And God bless you all. Head out. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. And don't forget to sign up to help out with Kidsway.